Hey gang, it's Jamie. This is 15 Minutes. And back on around January 21st, I thought it would be nice to celebrate the end of the Trump era by uh, rebooting, replaying, rebroadcasting, um, repotting my episode with George Saunders and my little mini episode with a little more George Saunders. That was from right at the beginning of the Trump era, and we did talk about Trump a little bit, but as as they say in the biz, we had a really wide-ranging conversation, and about a month after that conversation, I went to a reading, and I talked to him a little bit there, and he read a poem. Uh, I talked to him from the audience while he was on the stage, that is, uh, that second time. Point is, I wanted to celebrate and since then, I got caught up in other things, as we all did, like impeachment and stuff. But I was never under the misconception that we were going to win. The winning was getting it out there in public. And over the month, between month and a half, between January 6th and now, I found myself writing what became a 4,000-word document that I was going to put on Medium, or I was going to talk, uh, I was going to recite to you all. Um, but it's a 4,000-word document charting all the winning we have done, going way back to, to, to how long Donald Trump has tried to discredit Joe Biden. Not a huge Biden fan, but I think he was the guy to beat Trump, and Trump knew that first big win. From there to the 2018 midterms, and from there to this past year, where we've done so much goddamn winning, and I feel like no one is thinking about all the winning we've done. We're all just fretting about that he didn't get impeached by the most corrupt Senate you could imagine. Of course he wasn't going to get... He was impeached, sorry. Convicted. It was never going to happen. And I want to say today, on February 23rd, 2021, that I wouldn't bet a dime on Donald Trump ever going to prison. But he's someone who cares more about being filthy rich and about winning. Those are the only things he cares about in the whole world. And all he's been doing is being revealed that he's broke and losing and losing and losing and losing. He lost the election. He lost a court case a day for two months. He, he, he helped throw the Georgia... Georgia! Georgia elected two Democratic senators, one of whom was a young white guy. Jewish guy, I'm sorry. Of course it was a white guy. A young Jewish guy who was running against an incumbent good old boy zillionaire whose father, no, uncle, had been governor. I'm a little manic. I spent four years being way too sedate in this podcast, in these intros, because I was trying to stay calm while we were all in the midst of an unavoidable, abusive relationship with a troll that we could not get away from. He was in our feeds, on our TVs, in our newspapers, in our magazines, in our brains. And we have won. And anyone on Twitter who says that they're that that, that we're lying if we say we're happy Trump isn't there is needs help. Because my whole life is so much better without having Donald Trump be a daily part of my existence. And yes, I'm talking about him now because I want you all to celebrate
the wins. Take the win. It's a great expression. Don't find a loss in the win. Take the win. We are moving on. Democracy, such as it is, has survived. Happy New Year, a little late. Here is the wonderful George Saunders from early 2017. Hello. <laughs> Hello, George Saunders. Hey, you got it right now, Jimmy. Uh, I want to start by saying that I, I, I really, uh, I appreciate that you're, you're wanting to talk to me about, you're, you're doing all this press for the book, and I want to talk to you about not the book. And I especially don't want to talk about the book because Friday night, about halfway through the book, and I'm like, I got to finish the book. But I'm enjoying the book too much, and I'm not reviewing the book, so I'm not. I don't want to rush through the book. That works for me. It's kind of a relief to talk about something else. So, I thought before I dive in and ask you a question that maybe with our emailing you might have something you wanted to to start me off with about fame. Uh, well, I mean, the only you know when you wrote me originally, I thought of that uh, something David Foster Wallace said once about the idea that the you know, even the most famous writer in the world is about as famous as a local TV weatherman. You know, so I, I always feel something like fame. Eh, it's not, it's not that exactly. It's something, it's something else, you know, but um, yeah, it, it's not, it's not a real, it's not a real problem in my life. <laughs> no, it's true. You don't have, I've talked to other people about the walking down the street, you know, you can still walk down most streets, I assume, and not be. Yeah. Well, sometimes it, sometimes I think I'm Wolf Blitzer, but other than that, it's not a big issue. But it, it seems like in the past few years, though, since since uh, the success of the last book, you've you've certainly had some more proximity to it. Yeah, I mean, you, it might be like um, I mean, honestly, I could say there's like three or four times where somebody on the street has said, "Oh, you know, like love your work and this that," and then you do get maybe. Um, you know, it's actually nice about it. I mean, to, to not bullshit is that it, it does get you a certain entree into certain worlds that you might want to get into, or you get invited to things that are interesting, or uh, you get a, a, a bit more of a platform if you, if you want one, or, you, you know, you go to do a talk somewhere and there's a small little bubble of people who know who you are, which then kind of enacts a different communication mode. You know, if people know who you are and respect you and they are there to hear you, it, it sort of opens up some possibilities of communication. So, and so, I mean, from my point of view, the writing version of, you know, whatever this thing is, is the best because it doesn't impede your ability to observe the world. You know, you don't get that kind of Heisenberg, Heisenberg uncertainty principle where you're changing the reality that you're observing. Uh, but when you want it or you need it, you can get, you know, 10% more something, more access or more, um, entree and that that's you know that's really wonderful and i assume it also probably helped the producers of uh for those of you who don't know uh you do know you heard my introduction which i haven't done yet <laughs> um that, that that on on valentine's day george saunders new novel lincoln and the bardo is coming out and there is an audio version coming out with a cast of how many 
166. Including your Julianne Moore's and Ben Stiller's and Susan Sarandon's. And I kind of assume that that is easier to... And my mom and dad. Oh, and and your mom and dad and you as 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 the reverend? Yes. Typecasting. That is really great that your mom and dad are in it. Yeah, they they were really sweet about it. But I assume that that 4 years ago this wouldn't have happened. Uh I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's right. There's um I guess there's a well, with my career, you know, it started out very quietly and late, and it kind of just slowly, slowly grew. So I think there there is kind of this weird feeling of a, I don't know if you call it groundswell, but like a kind of a rising tide of of uh, people who know something about your work. And then that does, it makes things possible that, that wouldn't have been possible at the beginning, you know, for sure. And in this case, you know, I, I'd, uh, Nick Offman had interviewed me for his book, and we became friends, and uh then, like I had met Jeff Tweedy on the Colbert uh, finale, you know, so, so these things are enabled by for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really nice. I mean, actually that's one of the best things about it is you get to meet these people who are really intense and that you admire and you can kind of meet them on not, maybe not on an equal footing, but at least on a, a valid footing where, uh, you know, I mean, we've all had that experience where you meet somebody you admire and you don't have any, you know, you're just a face in the crowd and you go up to them and, you know, what you can just say, I love your work and they say, thanks. And, but if you have some kind of mutual um, connection through, you know, having known each other's work, then it's kind of cool. And, and it's, uh, you know, all, all good as far as I can tell. Yeah. And, and it's such a great serendipity that you, that you, this next project has all these voices and whose idea was it to have a cast of thousands? Well, it was kind of, uh, I had an idea, like a little seed of an idea because I was imagining trying to read it, the stupid thing aloud, you know, and it was like, there was so many voices and uh, I could just imagine, you know, nine hours of my South side of Chicago, lispy, weird, you know, manic voice. Uh, so I mentioned it to this woman, Kelly Gilday, who produced the 10th of December audiobook. I kind of mentioned it just like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if, and she was incredible. She was like, yeah, that, let's do it. You know? And then she, uh, I mean, she did all the heavy lifting, all the arranging and all the everything. So it was really just an idea to kind of get me out of what felt like an odious reading. I didn't I didn't want to do it. And then, um, you know, the form of the book sort of suggests it would be you could do it that way. It's, it's in a series of mo like linked monologues. So uh, that was just so nice, you know, to have the um, we'd worked together really, really well on the previous book. And and she was so willing to just go, yeah, let's, you know, let's throw a party and try to do it. And so that was really cool. I see Jeff Tweedy as Captain William Prince. Yep, he's amazing. He's great. And well, yeah, and I, I'm very excited to listen to it. And I wish I had known about it sooner, and I could have groveled to be to be a one a one page voice. Um, oh, we didn't use you because we were scrambling. You know, we had uh, you know we, we kind of got the the actors that we knew, and Kelly got a bunch of voice actors who were wonderful, and we're still like kind of like sixty people short. And then you, you're like, well, we need this many men and this many women. And, you know, so, but it was like, it was really like putting on a show, you know, it was like putting on a show, like a community project, like, come on, can you get, you know, get my friends from high school. I got a couple of high school teachers that really saved my life on there. And so it's, for me, it's really like as a, as a kind of just a personal document, it's pretty cool. I'm sure it was, uh, it felt great for them to do it too. Was this, I assume people phoned some of these in. They did them remotely. I think it would be um, 
Skyping Kelly would Skype in, and but they were, they were all in the studio. So I think we used in total eleven different studios around the country. No, and in fact, nobody. I think it's true that nobody was ever in the same room at the same time. Like you know, they would uh, even in bits that are back and forth dialogue, they'd be recorded in different places at different times and then edited together. So it, it was really a technical amazement that I had nothing to do with. I just would Kelly would call me and go, "Oh my God, so and so kicked so much ass today." <laughs> that that was about the involvement. That's terrific. So in in essence, you got to collaborate with all these wonderful people, but you didn't you didn't you didn't spend time with them. You just you all uh, you know that's terrific. Right. Yeah. It it was really a really a cool collaboration because it was kind of like you know I had so much fun writing the book and it really was um you know you get into this stage. I mean, speaking of fame or or public performance, you get into this stage and you're doing a lot of talking about this creative act. That in you know my thing is. You really can't talk about it too. I mean, the things that actually happen when you're writing a book are so magical and strange and intuitive that it's really hard to recreate it accurately. So you develop a kind of a syntax in addition to talk about it approximately. But what was nice about this was to have that experience at four year, just like the best artistic fun I've ever had and be kind of loath to give it up at the end. Like, Oh God, I don't want to finish it. I'm really liking this. And then they have kind of a second life in this, in the form of this audiobook collaboration was really sweet. It's different, you know, it's a different work of art and it proceeds on slightly, slightly different rules, but it was nice to, almost like a kind of a um, transitioning out of that phase to work on this for a few months and sort of, you know, an extended goodbye at the train station kind of thing. Is, is the pub date February 14th for a reason? E- yes. Oh, no, not for a reason. No, I think, you know, strangely, I think what we were, we could maybe have done it in the fall, but there's a lot of thought that we didn't want to get, get the election, you know, and now we get, instead we get the apocalypse. The the one thing that I I think you're clearly making, the answer is very clear, is that some people, you know, feel very impeded by a first, you know, by a huge success. And it doesn't seem like the, 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 all of it from 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 10th of December got in your way at all? No, I mean, I was old, you know. I mean, if it had happened at 22, uh, it would have been a different ballgame. But I had, you know, my first book didn't even come out until I was like 36 or something, maybe even older. Uh, so, and, and it was a, uh, like a nice literary hit. And then, it's, so it was uh, a real long, almost like, you know, a, a period of getting used to what, attention felt like and the different you know i mean really it's like i've said before it's kind of like if you eat but you know a big you know shit ton of, of beans you're going to get farty that that's not that's not on you that's not you it's, it's, you don't have a character defect so i think if you get attention of any kind and you can see this even on your birthday you know even the day after your birthday you're kind of pissy you know so i think this whole thing is you take you get attention uh and it makes you a little full of shit that that is going to happen so when it happens the way it did for me, like just very, very slowly over about a 20 year period, you get a little more, a little more, you kind of get in touch with the phenomenon. You're like, okay, so I've just been praised. I'm a little full of myself. I've just been criticized. I'm ready to jump off a cliff. Uh, and it comes in, it's almost like inoculation. It comes in small doses. And by this time, you know, I, I'm, at least I'm aware that it's a potential problem, you know, that you go in this phase of a book and you're, you know, 30% too happy with yourself or it goes badly and you're 30% too unhappy with yourself. That's sort of something you can step outside and, 
and and watch a little bit. And then two, you know, I, what I found is, is I've gotten older. Just naturally, there's a there's a kind of gratitude that settles in. Like, man, my, you know, my life could have been a lot different than this. I could have not gotten to do art for a living. And and uh, so that so between those two, it's kind of uh, I think mostly manageable. The only thing I'll say honestly is um, as you enact this cycle of making something and putting it out in the world and getting feedback, um, you know, you, you do it a few times. And if you do it successfully, you become aware that, you know, you're still going to die at the end. But that, and when I was younger, I thought that stuff was, I mean, I didn't think it overtly, but I think I did it partly as a kind of cushioning for some of the rougher things in life. Like, I, you know, I don't want to think about that. If I'm just successful or if I'm just making something beautiful, I don't have to worry about it. And after so many repetitions, you're like, oh, actually, no, that doesn't change any of that. You still have these, you know, these big issues to deal with. And I also, I think I'd, be, I'd become more aware of how addicted I am to, um, uh, I, I would say, addicted to being in control of my phenomenon, or like addicted to being perceived as a good guy, a good writer, nice guy, good father, good husband. Uh, because when, when any of those things get disrupted, even a little bit, I'm kind of jangly, you know, kind of upset. So especially this, like, like now the book's about to come out and, uh, you know, you have that feeling like, Oh God, this is actually going to be in the world. And some people aren't going to like it. Uh, you become sort of, you know, newly aware of how, how kind of fragile it is. And in, in an atmosphere where you're alone and you're writing or in an atmosphere where things are going well, um, you can sort of fool yourself into thinking you're, you're clear of that addiction to success or to, you know, uh, and, and so, so it's just, I, again, I think all this stuff is, you know, as, as when you're writing, you, you know, you're generating problems basically. And the artistic mindset for me is to say, okay, you know, a problem is, I mean, kind of new age, but a problem is actually an opportunity. So that pertains to the actual doing of the work. And it also pertains to the attention afterwards. And I think in a way it seems superficial, but the addiction to being perceived as a good guy leads to behaving as, you know, fake it till you make it. Yeah, no, I think that's true. This morning when we didn't reach each other, uh, I was not, you know, I, I've already told you I'm a fan, blah, blah, blah. And this is a, this is important to my little thing, but I didn't worry at all because I texted my wife and she's like, oh no. I'm like, no, no, this <laughs> we'll be in touch. This would be too, this would be so off brand if you didn't. <laughs> Work it out with me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, off brand. Yeah. I'm just happy to know there's a brand. No, I mean that's right, and I, you know, I think that's kind of the. Uh, well, not not only it, you're absolutely right. It, it's kind of like by simulating a, you know, a good person, you can actually become more of one. Uh, but then too, you know, you, you're um, to, to prioritize that is you know is good, and uh, also you know the, the the thing I found early on when I like even when the first book came out and you're doing interviews for the first time, there's a strong urge to construct somebody, you know, to decline this question and to always dress this way and to, you know, and I just found that exhausting, you know, and, and even the thought of it was, I didn't, I, I would say, well, who should I construct? And I couldn't come up with anything. <clears throat> so in a sense, it just became kind of a, you know, <clears throat> uh, in terms of just making my life easier, just to try to put as little distance between, you know, the, the public and private selves as possible. That's just, it's an incredible stress reducer because you just say what you really think. And, it, you know, then it, 
it uh, sometimes you don't, you know, it looks stupid or you say something dumb or, or your presentation isn't spectacular or you disappoint somebody, but in the long run, it's, it's um, much better for your artistic life. And I, and I noticed that, you know, uh, when you start off on an artistic career, there's lots of decisions to be made. And early on, because my writing time was at such a premium, I was still working in an engineering company. And I got in the habit of really trying to think of every aspect of one's, of my public life uh, in, in terms of would it help the next book or not. So if somebody says, do you want to do X? I'm like, well, <clears throat> is there any way that this would help me expand myself as a writer and as a person? Uh, if not, then probably I shouldn't do it. And actually, that's, I mean, it, it, of course, you can rationalize anything, but it's a kind of good way of saying, you know, how should I manage myself in public? Well, uh, in what way will it help you t- to make a better next book? That, and it seemed like kind of a simple equation in a certain way. That addresses something I, I always bring up with people, and that is this fear of, you know, even in my little ways as, you know, the guy who owns that bar or the guy who wrote that thing, when you meet people who know you from the outside thing of people placing things upon me, mm-hmm. that yeah. I'm going to disappoint. Yes. And if you don't, yeah, if you just are yourself in your work or if your work is, is uh, big words like honest, uh, you know, then, then it shouldn't be that big an issue, I guess. Right. Cause I, you know what I found myself doing is actually just conceding in advance that I would disappoint them. Like I know I will, because I, I, have, I'm never, uh, I, I said, I, my best self is in my stories because I work on them such a long time and I bring so many different parts of myself to the table that, uh, you know, it's, it can, you can make a sort of a rarefied thing that is not you. You know, you wish, I wish I was as ABC as the, you know, as, as nice or as, you know, well, you're not, that's why you do it. So then, you know, um, I, I do remember that feeling early on of meeting somebody I'm, like, I remember meeting Dave Foster Wallace and, and feeling like, I hope he, I hope I can, you know, present in such a way that he'll, you know, that it'll make sense seen side by side with my stories. I'm like, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Just concede that you're, you're going to be your same usual dope. You know, you I mean, I'm neurotic. I talk too fast, all those things, you know, uh, you're just going to be that person. That's okay. That's, that's me. But the work is actually what you're putting, you know, you're kind of putting stock in that and it, it makes it easier just to go. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm definitely a letdown in person. Sorry, but you know, and then, but then also it frees you up to be nice and to be, um, you know, to just to try to be, uh, you know, open to people and, and, and also like gratitude comes in, you know, that, there was a time when I had zero readers and then I had 12, you know, and then I had 200 and, um, you know, to really, to really say what a nice difference it is to have X number of readers as opposed to zero. And, uh, you know, my readers tend to be really interesting people. And, and, uh, the thought that I could make a positive difference in the life of somebody who's really bright and really worldly and doesn't know me is that's a, that's a privilege. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If if Tenth um, of December hadn't had the success that it had, would you be feeling the short story writer's pressure? And like this is your novel, and that's always you know that's since you know, the eighties. I I remember Carver being you know judged or could never be judged as great because he hadn't written the big book, 
and you know, or the long book or the the novel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, I guess, uh, kind of in the spirit of what I said earlier, I, I, what I noticed was when, uh, let's say before 10th of December came out and, and it was, you know, didn't, we didn't know that it would be successful. My thought was kind of like, either way, you're going to have to play off the energy of that. So let's say it was a, it was just normal, like not a big success. Then I think that would make me hungrier to do more. And the more for me doesn't necessarily mean longer. It just means deeper. You know, so I think if that book had been, you know, not successful or not as successful, I think it just would have, I would have put the, you know, say the disappointment uh, back into the hopper. And and for me, a real profitable feeling is kind of like do something, get a response and that feeling of like, really, that's all I'm getting, you know, but not, not in an embittering way, but in like, all right, then let me, (laughs) let me go even deeper. You know, let me, if that didn't ring your bell, let me try harder. So that was a good feeling. Uh, but then the fact that it was successful had a sort of slightly different thing, which was um, almost like a pat on the back, like, oh, they got that. Okay, so you can afford to take a, you know, additional chance. So again, I mean, I, in a certain way, I, I think part of the game is to play yourself a little bit. Um, you know, if your goal is to get to the end of your life and be as productive and beautiful as you, an artist as you can be, then at every step of the way, you should be prepared to use whatever happens to further that goal. It's a little bit like self-manipulation, you know. While while maintaining being a good person. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing, though, actually. When you think of it, I mean, if you if I go out in the yard and fall and break my leg, you, I mean, I can say, oh, no, I'm doomed, you know. What is, what crappy luck, the world is conspiring against me those media elites, or, but, but, or I can just get, you know, I can say, okay, a broken leg. Well, that's interesting. You know, sucks, hurts. It's going to screw up my tour, but uh, I'm not going to go on a tour with a broken leg. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm not trying to make myself out to be a Pollyanna, but, but you, but basically part of the artistic juggernaut is to say to the world, whatever you give me, I'm going to do my best to plow it under and, and use it, you know? So that also would pertain to one's, um, career trajectory, theoretically, you know, you could, um, I mean, I know, you know, starting late and having the first three books come out and kind of get nice attention, but nothing earth shattering was an amazing gift in terms of productivity, because I just kept going, all right, I guess that's not the, uh, I haven't hit the nerve yet. And whereas I think if you hit it the first time out, you, of course, your inclination is going to be to think, oh, I got it, you know? So for me to be like in my thirties, forties, even early fifties and be going, huh, I still haven't quite, you know, broken through into any kind of anything that's even literary mainstream culture. Uh, and then to have that moment where you go, well, maybe it's me, maybe it's not them. It's me. That's all good artistic juice. You know, you, you're going to, you, it's going to help you wring the bullshit out of yourself. If, if you take responsibility for your own, you know, failure to ignite <laughs> waves of passion, you know, um, well, you said media elites, so I'm going to go there for a second um, because it's all so many of us think about most of the days these days. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and the piece you wrote, I, I, thinking about the piece you wrote and my little obsession this past year, which has been fame, and that those people that you, you traveled around with with Trump uh, and or you went to rallies and you saw the people – I've I've thought from the beginning that his recognizability, even though he wasn't even a a hero on his show, mm-hmm. is a huge part 
of his of his allure and i i don't know if if did it feel that way at all like he was a guy they knew oh yeah in fact in fact dave yeah dave eggers wrote about that actually and i think the idea that he yeah they knew him and also i think his kind of crusty pugnacious quality is what they you know as as the guy in the apprentice was actually what they liked they saw that as a kind of tough honesty and a kind of no bullshit um you know, authority figure. So, yeah, I think there's no question about that. That was a big, and I think that's why he was able to kind of pull ahead of the rest of the Republican field that they just felt kind of dull in comparison. And they also felt unknown, you know, he, with him. I mean, I'm, I'm about as far left as you can get, but I used to love Monty Apprentice. I was such a funny, you know, kind of a, an interesting Scrooge-like persona. So when they said, oh, he's running, I'm like, I don't want Scrooge running the country, but, but the people who liked him and didn't see him as Scrooge-like, but saw him as, uh, tough but fair, you know, or, or willing to cut through the political correctness. That was a, a huge selling point. Yeah. Um, and the other tie-in to, to the world today is you write a lot of pe- about, I mean, I, I've been going, of course, this past week, I've been going back through all the books and things that come up are, are people battling their own egos to do a risky and often heroic thing. Yeah. And a lot of people are wrestling with what they can do with themselves. And I don't know, I, I've never been in the position where I've had to make that decision. You know, do you jump in the freezing pond? So th- there's two things that relate to, to my topic. And that is, is being a hero as opposed to wanting to be famous, wanting to do some thing that's going to actually change someone's life. And then there's... Let's just stick with that for the for a second. As the clock ticks away, do I have exactly four minutes? No, no, you're good. I'm, I don't have anything for a while, so we're good. Uh, I, I mean, to me, that, that that's an interesting interesting because I have a real. I mean, I was raised Catholic, and I really loved it and really felt it. And so the the idea of Jesus as this kind of uh, extraordinary figure who comes in and saves you, you know, and and on all kinds of levels, uh, was a strong archetype that you know. I, uh, but. Um, the thing I'm thinking more and more in my life is that, that it, you have to be careful because that impulse to be a savior figure is also an incredibly egotistical thing because it implies that somebody needs to be saved. And it runs, you know, counter to some stuff that I've come across in Buddhist teachings, which is, you know, that the, um, that actually, you know, in a certain way, in a really deep, absolute way, everything's fine. I mean, things, the world is unfolding, uh, it, it, it does. It isn't necessarily on you to go out there and alter the trajectory. And if you do, as we often see, the if the if your desire to alter some trajectory has its root in your ego, you know, your, your sense of yourself as a messiah, you might overlook some meaningful data and screw it up. You know, you you could be. I mean, who hasn't done that? You know, I'm going to intervene <laughs> on X's behalf, and then you you make it worse. So I think there's kind of a um, in general, there's a real interesting. You know, a lot of interest, interesting things to think about when you talk about trying to be kind or trying to be beneficial and how much of that is being motivated by your need, one's need to be seen that way, and how that need actually has a very specific effect, which is it distorts your vision. So you, you uh, I mean, the example I always think about is you go into a coffee shop and the barista is weeping. Mm-hmm. All right, you're next in line. What do you do? You know, even if you're if you're sworn to want to be a kind, empathetic, helpful person, what do you do? I don't know. Sometimes you just shut the hell up, take your change and leave it alone. You know, maybe other times it might be beneficial to ask, you know, uh, how would you know? 
Well, you you know, the answer is yeah. incredibly heightened awareness. Yes, exactly. Which doesn't doesn't come just because you will it. It comes from, in my experience, it comes from spiritual practice, you know. So uh, I'm, I'm noticing as somebody who really has a strong Messiah complex, you know, in, in my small middle-aged way, that in me specifically, that's something I really want to be careful about because it often involves the assumption that the other person isn't quite capable enough to take care of themselves, which is wrong. Yeah. And, and it, 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 being outwardly being still and listening, and then you'll figure out what someone needs. Yeah. But then, you know, the, but, but even beyond that, there's one other step, you know, cause you're right. Be, and for me, that's a very important thing. Be still and listen. But on the other hand, you know, if that becomes a, an ironclad procedure, Mm-hmm. That can also be, you know, in other words, I, I notice in myself a real desire to just relax and have a have a have a, uh, a slogan, you know, <laughs> uh, always save, you know, or yeah. always be quiet. But the pisser is just like in a work of art, you, you don't get to go on autopilot. Autopilot is actually the enemy. So unfortunately, that means, you know, I guess it means awareness. You, you have to really be open today to every situation manifests differently. And your approach would have to be tailored to that particular instant on every occasion, which is a heck of a lot of work. The on, the other uh, element of your work, looking back at it and thinking in my through my little my little uh, fame lenses this year, is that there are a lot of people, and especially that I, I spent you know, and you leave a city, you meet. Yeah, I have a much wider circle of people than I ever had when I lived in cities when we we're all ghettoized with our little college educated friends and I and when I look back and I read things like um what's the story with joysticks in it uh Teal'c. uh and and Pastoralia and Civil War Land it's there's this flip side of fame it's people being seen who have to who have no choice but to be an object to make a living and I don't know. I don't. There's not really a question there. It just it just made me think about it. Well, I think with those stories, I was thinking a lot about just you know the the idea that you. Um, I mean, okay. I, so I was raised in in uh, in Chicago on the South Side, and I spent my whole twenties and thirties just kind of fumbling around for money, not not ever really getting any, and then and and sort of like uh, pretending that it didn't matter. And then, but feeling in my body, you know, in mind that it actually did matter. The paucity was kind of a drain, you know? So, um, and I, and I kind of dimly noted it in fiction. There wasn't that much of that, you know, uh, th- there was some, but mostly it was either no, somebody not working and going trout fishing or something, or, um, somebody working a job that wasn't really there. It, it didn't cost them much. Uh, and, and that wasn't running counter to my experience. I mean, there, I, I worked in a slaughterhouse for a while and just, you know, I was maybe 25 or something. And I, I would come home so beat up and feeling like 80, you know, I, I would just go right to bed, didn't do anything, got up in the morning and had that like run hot water on my hands to get them to open up. This is 25 years old. So it, it felt to me like, um, well, and then when I was writing those first couple books, or the first one, especially I was working full time. We had our kids. And I just noticed, you know, like that kind of weird thing that I was always kind of like averting my gaze from my actual shit to make something up. And, and so, I mean, I don't think I overtly made the decision, but slowly the real stuff started to come in through a kind of a weird side door, like the, 
you know, the actual weird little compromises that you make in an office job every day or the way that you have to kind of almost, um, you know, your, your actual motivation is to hang out with your kids and your wife, you know, uh, and there's plenty to do, you know, in the house and there's lots of stuff that needs doing and, you know, lots <laughs> of fun to be had, but you have to get up. And- D- don't know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. I remember one time, you know, I was working on civil Warland and there was, uh, the first book and, and I had, a one of my bosses kind of gave me the good news that I was going to get a field project. I'd been a tech writer, but I had an engineering background. So this is kind of a promotion. Like I'm going to actually get to go out and do some hydrogeologic work. So that's good, but it meant being away from home for like two weeks, which our kids were little and it was just unimaginable two weeks. And it's Fort drum up in upstate New York, staying at a microtel, you know, and I remember being on the front porch with my wife, like, I don't, I really, I really don't want to do this, you know, almost in tears about it. And we're like, yeah, but you know, you have to, so that there you go. So, so those kind of things, which aren't, you know, it's not, the, that's not the, the gulag, but, um, <laughs> those small things that you do that seem so uh, counter to your instincts as a human being and the thousands of those things that a a job consists of. And again, not to complain about having a job, but anyway, those things started finding their way into my stories. Uh, Of course, a little exaggerated. And um, so that, so that was really a big breakthrough for me to say kind of like whatever you're experiencing in this actual life right now, even though it's not the life you're going to have, that's got to be grounds for literature, you know, sort of like in church, they say, if, if, you know, two or more of you are gathered in his name, well, same thing, if two or more of you are gathered, that ought to be grounds for literature, even if it doesn't seem like it. And in fact, the, the less it seems like literature, the more potential there is for originality. Yeah. And it seems like you have to get older and older to get to that point or else some people are, are wise younger to reach there. But every summer I teach a, a workshop at a prep school that I work at and there's always, there are always one or two people who want to write about, you know, write a first person story about a banker on wall street. Right. And I'm like, right. Yeah. And I, I, I straight up say to them, this is not going to be any good. Unless you do a huge amount of research and then you're going to imitate someone else, but you should do it if you have to, because you don't have a clue. (laughs) You have a clue about being a teenager and that might be boring to you, but it might not be if you really sit down and start writing about it. Yeah. And, and, but now the tricky thing is there's sort of one level beyond that where if the person wrote a fucked up enough version of a wall street Mm. banker that, that was, that was totally infused with his teenage perspectives, it might, you know, I mean, who knows? But, but I, I, yeah, I think that's, I mean, for me, the, um, you know, I never was a believer in fiction as a, like a confessional booth, you know, I don't mainly because I don't want to confess anything. I, I've got plenty, of it, but I don't <laughs> want to do it. So, so I thought it was more as a kind of a morphing booth, booth where you took the impulses um, and, you know, little glimpses of beauty and horror that you've had and put them in this machine and it kind of makes a distorted version of them. That, that would still contain the, the actual thing, the beauty and the horror, but it would just be in an alternate presentation. And I mean, I don't believe in that as an abstract thing, but that's the way I have to proceed. Like if someone said, write a book about your childhood, I would just go, no, I, I won't. I just won't. There's nothing there for me. But if I can start to kind of almost like reflect on some weird side thing, all of that, whatever knowledge or wisdom you have, it, it's going to, it's going to flow. Over if you decided to write a, a story about, you know, these four pens and a ruler on my desk and personify those, 
that's a completely idiotic idea. But if you did it energetically enough, it would start to have your have a, a, a tincture of your stuff about it. You know, it would have to. What, what else could you put in there? One of my best experiences as a teacher was uh, a young man I taught when I was at UMass who I ran into probably eight years ago, who I ran into two years ago at a party, who said he was writing these very florid, fantasy, romantic poems. And I said, could you write me a poem about this ruler? <laughs> and he wrote a great poem about it. And he said, that changed my life. He quit UMass, went to Berkeley, and now he's a working musician. And I'm like, my job is done. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. I, yeah, amazing. I felt so good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it is funny. I mean, I think that that's kind of the game for anybody who's an artist is to kind of, uh, I guess you sort of accept the whole caboodle. You know, you, you of course, there are the parts of yourself that you like and that you want to illustrate or use, you know, and then there's that other stuff that's a little rougher and maybe you don't even know about it, you know, but you're going to have to bring it all to the table. So that like the teaching at Syracuse, that's one of the great things is we get, the students are so good that you don't have to do the any of the beginning, you know, there's nothing you have to do except try to get them to do the thing that only they can do. And that's really cool. work. You know, it's very, um, and that's a great point. I don't actually discourage the kid from writing that story, but once they write the horrible draft of the banker story, then I'm a little critical because they might write a wonder, wonderfully messed up version. Probably. I mean, I, I actually, you know, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I mean, what you're exactly right in that the impulse to do that is sort of, and I remember it because I wrote a million imitation Hemingway stories, but the impulse there is to falsify and therefore occupy this ideal space that you wish you were in. But in fact, the, the real work is less glam or maybe more glamorous, which is just occupy the space you're actually in and kind of, you know, de delimit it or demark it, demarcate it, whatever word is it, you know, to mark it out in spite of what you might find, you know, like for me to, to kind of go, uh, to start letting humor in was a big step because I didn't really, I thought it was kind of like we didn't do that in literature, you know? I grew up loving, you know, funny things and then somehow decided that Joy Division and Beckett were what I loved. So I, you're not supposed to be funny, but then I'm like, oh yeah, Beckett's really funny. It took yeah, a long yeah. time to realize that. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit like, um, I mean, to sort of come back to the same idea, it's a little bit like the first time you see yourself on a video or on TV or hear an interview of yourself it's not what you want. You know, it's not what, it's not what you planned. It's, uh, you know, your voice is weird. You look weird. You're, you know, you're not saying exactly what you mean, or you can, uh, the worst is when you can sort of see the agenda in yourself, you know, you're, you're trying to, you know, play a part or something, but that's what it is. I mean, there you are, you know? So, so that moment of sundering where your internalized wishful vision of yourself comes up against your actual vision is really good. I mean, it's not comfortable, but it, but it's, uh, and, it, and in, in prose, I think it happens for me in revision where you, you thought the story was this one thing and you come back to it and the energy is being given off in different places than you expected. So the real litmus test is, do you accept that or reject it? You know, do you cling to your original vision or do you go, okay, shit, I actually do sound that way. Or the story actually does want to go in this direction. And you usually have to I don't know. I feel, I feel like for me, I usually have to accept that whether I like it or not. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's sometimes a struggle and it's not always that fun to accept it, but I think, and also, you know, it's funny that every story that I write, that moment comes in different guises. So you, again, back to the idea of autopilot, you can never say 
here's how I write a story. You, you have to kind of show up and write that particular one, hoping you'll get to that moment of, of I guess it's honesty or something where this, you know, Stuart Divex says the story is always talking to you, but you have to listen to it. And that, you know, and that's a beautiful lesson that, you know, it gets, it just gets repeated again and again. Well, uh, speaking of youthful fantasy, I've only heard, read or heard you talk about this once, and it was with Jesse Thorne 10 years ago. Oh, boy. That, that the dream was the band. And I want to know what the band was and what you played and what your idols were. Was this... Uh, that you were in a high school or post-high school band, and that was going to be oh yeah, your ticket. Yeah, no... Right. There, no, what happened was, yeah, I, I was, uh, it was senior year and I just hadn't made any plans that we didn't really, you know, in our family, the college really wasn't a thing that you, that you pushed toward. Uh, and so there was this really amazing guitar player in our, in our high school and he drafted me to be in this band with him. So we played in his basement and he was like really good. And uh, I was, we were kind of like, I think we imagined ourselves to be a bit like Kansas. Like he was <laughs> oh, the, that's so awesome. the electric guy and I was a pretty good, pretty good finger picker. You know, and we had a good drummer and then, um, and I did, he was just like an, uh, like a, you know, a star in our school. So for me to get to hang out with him was really cool. And then, um, at one point he said, he said that he had, uh, let's see, how what was the deal? I always say he, he, he knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody in the Eagles, but that was actually true. There was a, um, there was a, a guy who was opening for the Eagles, a great guitar player. And this, my friend knew him. And so supposedly there was this thing in place that we were going to go on tour and be like the fourth, fourth opening act for the Eagles. And even then I was a little like, yeah, I don't know. That sounds a little, is that how that works? You know? And so I was pretty much not believing it, but willing to play along because I had nothing else going on. And I really loved, you know, playing with this guy. And then one day he goes, you know, you need a different, no, we had to go buy a PA. So I said, all right. So we go to this music store and he pulls out a uh, certified check from United Artists for like 10 or $20,000, you know? So I think there was something to it. I, I never really investigated it, but, um, so we, I, we played together for, you know, writing some songs and stuff. And then, uh, there was this fateful, uh, trip, you know, if you lived in Chicago, you could go skiing up at, um, in Wisconsin at these kind of drumlins, like this, I think it's called Wilmot, the pretty modest skiing, you know, and, and, but, and I'd never been. So we went up and I, and uh, one of my high school teachers uh, saw something in me and gave me Atlas Shrugged by Ann Rant, with that big thousand page book. So I took it with me and was reading it. And it just really, I mean, now I don't, you know, I'm not a fan, but that I hadn't read a novel in probably, you know, since I was a little kid and it just pulled me in and I, couldn't wait to get off the hill and read the book, you know, and it was coming alive in my mind. And along with it was this whole idea that I could actually be a thinker, you know, be like an intellectual person. And that's when the switch got thrown on. And I came home from that trip going, I'm going to go to college. And I quit the band and, uh, you know, went from there, but it was a kind of a, like, uh, I think we saw ourselves as like Kansas or yes, you know, kind of like, uh, art rock, you know, so it'd be like lots of, uh, like really, and he was good. We, you know, we do like these two part harmonies and the whole, the whole deal, but you know, do you know where he is today? I, uh, I don't, I don't, I think he went on to have a musical career cause he was really, really gifted. And, uh, but I don't, I don't think he, you know, he became like in a famous band, but I think he teaches or something like that. But there, there are a couple of questions I, there, I usually ask people, often it's people who are, who are not at the position where you are now and that is who would you most you know, you've talked about this already but who what audience do you dream of or 
What one person, living or dead, would you most want to read and appreciate your work? Or is there, or also the other part is, is there a first or most important piece of praise from someone, an authority or something that made you be like, I am a writer. This is, huh. you know, not fame, but I am, I am this thing now. Well, you know, the, the second question I, I had written, uh, I, I, I kind of, I kind of broke out of this Hemingway mode at one point and wrote this funny story, uh, called, uh, a lack of order in the floating object room. No, no, that's not true. No, this, this was later. I wrote a story that was in civil war land. Uh, called the Wavemaker Falters. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it kind of in a vacuum at work. And I'm like, God, this is, that was so much fun, you know. And I sent it to Toby Wolf, my teacher at Syracuse. And, you know, that was such a, I mean, in some ways, kind of a rude thing to do because uh, he's, he wasn't my teacher anymore. And he was busy. But he read it very quickly. And he just sent back a quick letter. There's no email in those days. And it was just basically like, you're on the right track. Or, or he says, you're, you're hitting a really new note here. And that was it. I mean, that was like, uh, I mean, I was probably, you know, I, I kind of knew that, but to have somebody I loved and respected so much confirm it was just like, yes, I'm good. You know, and uh, so that was the, I mean, the, the best praise I ever could have gotten at, at precisely the right moment, you know? Uh, and as far as who, you know, there's so many people that I, that I, um, you know, all these people that you admire and you love the thought that something that you, do would touch them, you know? So I mean, right now I'm really thinking about Meryl Streep, that, that speech she gave. I thought, what a, what an amazing person, what an icon, you know, but uh, I would be really curious. <laughs> this, this is like stupid, but I would love to have Hemingway read some of my stuff because I don't think he'd like it, but I would, I'd like to have an argument with him about it, you know? Um, and maybe we could fight. I don't know. We'll see if I could get him like really, really old. And then yeah. have me be like 28, then we could maybe fight. Yeah. Well, you used to fight a little when you were younger, right? I did. I did actually. Yeah. But not anymore. No, I'm, he was no, a big I'm, guy. though. I'm, he was big. Yeah. yeah. Was big. <laughs> but old, right. I Get him know. old. He was big. And also he was kind of a rich kid. So I don't know. We'll see. Get him old. And maybe I could hit him from behind. I don't know. We'll, I would have to work out the details. But, but also, you know, he, he was also an incredibly beautiful writer. I think he gets a little short change, but uh, we've been reading uh, uh, in class doing a little bit from in our time. And that's an incredibly gorgeous, sensitive, you know, books i really don't want to fight maybe we get an arm wrestle or something right and no i think he does get shortchanged a lot for some reason at at northfield mount Hermon, where i where i work it hills like white elephants is something almost everyone ends up reading yeah uh, yeah and it's yeah it's a beautiful story yeah and some of those are those early ones that, and the way that that in our time works as a collection is really something worth studying because it's very odd you know and you can feel i think with him he always felt these really sensitive guy uh fighting with the you know, the more macho part of himself. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, have you started, are you on the road yet? No, no, I'm home. And I start, I think in about, a, uh, about 10 days. Mm-hmm. Well, I am going to see you in Cambridge. Are you driving around or just zipping? Uh, part of it. I think we're driving the Southern leg, but mostly it's just flying and it's, you know, it's pretty intense. It's like, um, I mean, this is something that I, I didn't realize was that when you actually get the opportunity to tour like that, it's pretty, it's pretty serious. You know, you go, you do uh, an event at night and then fly out early the next morning. And then if the book is doing well, you actually fill up the days with stuff too. So, you know, it, it's, and it's kind of, you know, it's pretty intense. And I could, I could, you know, like we started out talking about how, how modest uh, literary fame is, but you can kind of get a little bit of a taste of what a truly famous person's life would be like, because it really, um, you know, you ha- you have to be 
uh, public for large swaths of the day when you're really tired. And, uh, you know, and it, it's kind of a, it's good. It's like a pretty interesting uh, chore to try to, to try to get through it with grace. I, I think of it as a pretty dream kind of, of, of mini fame in that once the tour is over, yeah, I was talking to uh, Maeve Higgins, who's a who's a comic. Who, you know, uh, she she moved to the U.S., but in Ireland, she's recognized and stopped on the street. She's Irish, <laughs> and and how you don't realize how important your anonymity is until you lose it. But as a writer, very rare, it's pretty rare that you can't just go somewhere else and be invisible. No, you know what actually happens is you go and do a big event, and and you feel so great, and then you step outside, and in two minutes, it's you know, there's nothing. <laughs> so, so it's really, it's really good. But, uh, but you know, you, you can sort of see though that, and, and this goes back to something we talked about earlier is if, if a person is the center of attention in even a modest way for a long stretch of time, it distorts the worldview. You know, suddenly the, you know, since we were little kids, we were trying to get free of the idea that we were central to the universe, you know, and then when you, you hit 30 or so, maybe that starts to actually happen because the world is humiliating you. But then if you get a little bit of attention, that process reverses and you actually start to think, oh, yeah, I was right in the first place. I really am so important, you know. And then what's really funny is when when the book's been out a while and that that buzz dies down and you're back to, you know, your usual number of emails a day, you can really feel the falseness of it. You can feel that you pulled up this sheet over your head and played big shot for a while. And because of the way your bubble gets made, I mean, you know, you're 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 only noticing when people notice that, you know, then you can convince yourself that this, the world has changed, but it's, it hasn't been, and you just been kind of fucking with yourself for a few months, you know? So the trick is to become familiar with that and go, Oh, I'm at, I'm at about a 6.8 on the fucking with myself scale. I'll be, I'll be all right. You know? Unless the world just never tells you that and you become the president. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think the world is going to, you know, the world is telling him a lot of things right now. Not good. I just did. Oh, did you really? I, I got yeah. very superstitious about that. Uh, a friend of mine hooked me on that years ago, but there's no wood near me. I, you knock on your head, I guess, when there's no wood. Yeah. Or your boner. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Snuck a boner in there. Um, I listened to a conversation just the other day with you and doing my homework with, um, uh, what's her name? Where boner, you, you, you got embarrassed because there were two boner jokes. Uh, you only get one. <laughs> um, uh, I'm just I'm 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 looking over at, at my screen to see if there's anything in particular that I have not brought up with you that I'll kick myself for later, but I don't think there is. And I'm really glad that we finally chatted today. Uh, I enjoyed it. Glad we made the connection. Uh, the book is, is wonderful, and congratulations. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh, well, I had, that was so much fun. It was just a great, lovely experience. I'm kind of, kind of missing it. I had this thing where I, you know, the book's got kind of a, a, a constraint, which is I can't do contemporary voices in it because it's set in 1862. So that was part of the fun was to say, okay, that might go to. I have to put that aside and try to find another thing. But um, what was interesting was not having written in a contemporary voice for four years there's this weird associated effect because I'm not that interested in the contemporary world anymore, which is kind of scary. You know, like I don't, I, there used to be a way that I would respond to, um, you know, just like contemporary vistas. I like go to the mall. It would, it would like 
make me artistically kind of revved up. And that's coming back slowly now, but it, but it was weird. It was like, I would have thought the relation was you, you get artistically revved up, which produces the language, which I think is true, but I'm finding out that the converse is true. The inverse is true that you, the, um, wallowing in contemporary language actually makes you more interested in contemporary phenomena. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you bring that up because my, I was anxious when they, they sent me the bound galley because you know, as a fan, I am not a fan of historical fiction. Right. Well, me neither. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, Oh, I'm going to be sad. And, and, and then immediately two pages in your it's, it's so your book. Well, I can tell you exactly where that where that turn happened because I had the same feeling. You know, you start writing in this moment, you're like, oh God, I'm leaving something out. And then, uh, but I think that's kind of the whole process. Is it's kind of like riding a bike. You know, you say, okay, I'm doing this thing. My reader is starting to get leery. Oh, all right. Well, I can fix that. You know, so but but it will be nice to go back and write in uh, contemporary voice. But I miss this. I'm I'm you know to, to immerse yourself in a historical period like that is so rich. You know, and so. Uh, it kind of lengthens your working days because you you have all that casual research reading that you can do at night and all that. But um, yes, yeah, so it was fun. But, I, but thanks for reading it. Thanks for writing it. And I look forward to hearing it in a couple of weeks. See you in Cambridge. See you in Cambridge. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Jimmy. Bye-bye. Okay. Jamie, I presume? George. Mm -hmm. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. We have spent like three hours on the phone the other day, really pleasurably. Yeah. <laughs> it was, thank you. It, it, it felt like that, but it was only an hour. It was only 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I have that effect on people. So maybe you can guess the kind of thing I'm going to ask you about. You've worked on this book for a long time, thought about it for years before that, and now you've had these last 10 days or so of heaps and heaps and heaps of praise. The general question is, how does that feel? And Good. the more specific one is, okay, that was easy. And the more specific one is out in the world of these devices and media, people seem to be looking to you as more than just a writer this past week. As someone who with your fierceness and kindness and humility are being seen as kind of a... The, uh, the closest thing to, that, all, but You've always been that. Yeah, yeah. But the closest thing to a... Yeah. anti-Trump straight white male and I think people are really looking at you as more than just a writer I'll like, take it I will yeah. take it but how did, yeah. do yeah. you feel it and are you comfortable with I, I'm not I don't, actually I, I'm moving so fast that, but yeah, yeah I, I'd be comfortable with that I mean I you know I, I think um, in this right now can I read you a poem to explain to you how I feel I, when I get stressed out in my life I write Susian doggerel <laughs> and when, really, when I came back from Ed's wedding, I, the first thing I did was at a conference call, I wrote these really nervous Dr. Seuss poems. And my wife, after that head enhancing, she read them, <laughs> and she was laughing from the other room. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, God, I finally got a, you know, a positive reaction after six years of showing my work to people. So I wrote these Dr. Seussian poems, and that kind of threw open a door for humor. But I, this is crap, but it's, it may, maybe it's not. Let's see. So here's, a, here's a, a poem after Dr. Seuss. A fragile egomaniac has taken up the reins, obsessed with size, defensive, and unmoved by others' pains. He seems to think that saying A, while B is clearly true, will cause the truth of B to wane and make A true to you. 
He stomps his foot and with his hand he does that little chopper. <laughs> then calls all things amazing as he tells another whopper. <laughs> what is it that he wants so much? What wound must he assuage with all these lies and posturing and all that pent-up rage? When all is said and done, it seems the thing he wants is more, enough to finally satisfy some raging inner war. Everything's unfair to him, so sad, so overrated. Whatever gifts the world can give, insulting and belated. If some of you who voted for this vain and flailing man are noting now some meanness in his attitude and plan, it's fine, it's great, we welcome you. Please come on back and aid us in switching off the Kellyannes who nightly serenade us <laughs> with tricky sliding caveats and puzzling odd denials, with scary twisted Orwell riffs and sunny prom queen smiles. In other times and places, this dopey gong has sounded to claim that truth's negotiable and that we're all surrounded by enemies, by enemies, by horror and by hate, by refugees who want us dead and liberals sleeping late. <laughs> but what if in the end, my friends, what seems most true is true. The president is like himself and not like me and you. A famous guy for all these years, an ego in a bubble, who learned that great attention could be got by causing trouble. And craving said attention, scuttled out in its pursuit, the working man's defender in a fine Briani suit. Speak up, rise up, correct and shout, be stubborn and satirical, resist, rebuff, demand the truth, be positive and lyrical. Your country needs you now for sure, your country needs your power. It needs you like a fragile thing in some uncertain hour. For goodness, peace and decency were never heaven sent, and each of us must now become our own alt-president. Thank you very much. This is 15 Minutes. You can find episodes of this show at 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Or wherever pods are cast. And remember, everybody, take the win. See you soon.
John Hodgman, Tim Lockfeld, Mark Berger, Case Hudson, Annie Duke, Lois Parkinson, Monty Belmonte, Hardy White, Matthew Letkowitz, Soren Mason Temple and Dave Rothstein, Dan Oppenheimer, Penny Lane, Andy Zeisler, Sarah Jaffe, Eugene Merman, Jessica Abel, Anya Schutz, Lindsay Mace, Anjali Milani, uh, Andrew Leland, Tina Antolini, Nora Murphy, Gordon Giebert, Cameron Bossert, Maeve Higgins, David Brock, Neil Pollock, George Saunders, Shanali Bomick, Tom Papalardo, Abby Crutchfield, and Matt and Kate Lorenz. I'm recognized for the work that I do, which is tremendous, and less so for my my being associated with a larger world of celebrity that right. people want to be a part of. And that didn't have to happen. I miss it. Right. But I also appreciate in order to maintain and cultivate and increase that level of fame, mm-hmm. it would have required a lot more work on fame than I was interested in. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I would think that, because we, we're different, I don't crave that kind of but I would think, in, like, say, in your neighborhood, you wouldn't want in Brooklyn. Why? I don't know, because I don't want people... Don't you to... like getting free drinks and tables at restaurants? That's true. I do. But the first day, like, I'd be up in a tree, mm-hmm. and it's a three-story house, I believe, and out of a window, Sharon Stone, I mean, I'm working on what I'm working on, I'm here, hi, Tim, and there's Sharon Stone, you know, it's just like, ah, it would <laughs> fall out of the tree. And uh, so, so she, yeah, yeah, that's really, you know, it's, it's uh, okay. It's a trip. So, yeah. you know, celebrities are like, you know, they're startling. They're yeah. startling. Well, George promised me that he would get Annie Duke to come and tell stories with us oh. on this tour. And we're going to sit right at this table because there was like a little yeah. table set up on the bus. We're going to sit right at this table. And we're going to play poker. She's going to take all our money, but I'm not going to care because we're going to learn a lot about poker. Most people would say Kanye's Kanye and has achieved such a great level of success. If only I could achieve that level of success, I would finally be happy. If the being happy is the the achieving of this level of success and you think that that next level is going to get you happy, guess what? You are already not going to be happy. You might as well just learn to be happy now. I, ha- I have to let myself enjoy it and realize that you can have um, meaning in people's lives who you don't know. And, and that's, that's an, an interesting thing. It's not necessarily bad, you know? And um, you just have to sort of uh, go with it and both make sure you're both getting something out of it. That's where I would like to get. Like, I, in terms of, I don't know if I want to do anything specific or I want access to certain people. I just would like to be given the opportunity to make the things I want to make. Um, and if I could do that at a large scale, that'd be amazing. But I don't think that is in my, I don't think that's where this road leads necessarily, but it might, it might. You make something for people to see people saw it, but that's not why I do it. I would do it even if no one was looking like Uh, I do it for me completely mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. as like a selfish need mm-hmm. to paint all the time or to make stuff. Well, so wait, can we talk about this? Cause I'm interested. I mean, I feel like I'm a student of Mark Maron and to a lesser extent of, of Terry Gross. 
um, and, and maybe of Jamie Berger. I'm not sure. Like everyone else, you know, if you say like, hello, I got into Sundance on Facebook to go mm-hmm. back to Facebook for a second, you're going to get like 500 likes in like yeah. 10 minutes, right? Yeah. And, but that's not really the thing. Like the, the real success was like getting the movie done mm-hmm. or like figuring out a major problem and solving it. It's all kind of like this much more inchoate, like private, inward facing process that's the thing it's like the reason i do what i do but then it looks to other people like the reason is mm-hmm. the critical response or the reason is like the film forum premiere and it's not and so i think there's this again it's that sense of falseness one of the things that you know made me start thinking a lot about this book before i wrote it was this sense of feminism as something you kind of get as like a like a badge or a byproduct of your consumption of pop culture. One of the questions that I get asked a lot are variations like, are variations on a question like, uh, you know, can I do X and still be a feminist? Or what if I consider myself a feminist, but I still like Y? So to me, that's really interesting because it really is thinking about feminism as, as this kind of like static metric of quality rather than as something that is like a living, uh, evolving, ongoing, you know, ethic of living your life. As soon as someone finds out you play in a band, everyone wants to call you a rock star, which is, there's no equivalent to that in the writing world, you know? Um, Like, I think that there's a lot more, at least in terms of like, the public aspect, there's so much more of a fascination and sort of deification of musicians. I think there's like, I definitely appreciate that people like my work and I definitely appreciate a certain level of stuff, but I don't believe like someone would be like allowed to like drag me around a town for four hours Mm -hmm. meeting people. Like, I don't know. I don't know where like the, Mm -hmm. the line would be. So I definitely know you know, people who I see get overwhelmed by a level of sort of unusual intrusiveness that nobody would normally do except for they weirdly think is appropriate, I guess, if you're... That they're entitled. Yeah, because they're like, well, I, I think there's this idea of, like, I gave you your career or something. I yeah. don't really know. Yeah. It might be. I mean, again, this is not yeah. that common. Yeah. But I've certainly seen it where I think, like, oh, like, thank God that isn't me. Like, that seems completely overwhelming. The more specific you can be about who that audience is and in what way you want to connect with them, uh, the better a your writing's going to be, and more more you know to the point, your marketing's going to be. The more you're going to be able to communicate with that audience, and you're going to get more confident and be more um, sure of what you're doing if you think, you know, this is who I'm writing for. And I think you know another key thing that I figured out in the last year or so is like. Think about who you want to repel. Like, who do you who do you want to alienate <laughs> by what you're doing? And you know, who would you not care if they never looked at your thing ever? And if you do that, you can start to really put boundaries around what it is you are you do care about and who it is you are really pursuing. I will say I've compared notes with other journalists before, and. There are some people who 
it's like a shade goes up at the beginning of the interview and then the shade goes down again at the end of the interview. It's like, and I think that that makes a lot of sense because if everybody, if you're famous and everyone wants a piece of you, I mean, that seems like a pretty understandable survival tactic also. So, but like, you know, um, it really depends on the person. Yeah, and uh, while simultaneously, like, showing us things like reality TV shows where, 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 like, you know, these people are famous but sort of exploiting themselves in order to become famous. And it's interesting to me that, like, fame is still so attractive when, like, that's what we're shown. But but also maybe I'm just viewing it through my particular, like, upper-middle-class white intellectual frame and can't see what – other people who see that and want to be on reality TV shows see. I'm very pleased with the level of success that I'm at. And I think if you had told me when I was 14 and first learning to play guitar that I would be doing what I'm doing today, I would be so thrilled. I don't think I would think, oh, you haven't been in Rolling Stone yet. Like, I thought that's where we'd be, you know? (laughs) I think I would be psyched to hear that I had a band with my best friends and that I played, you know, several shows every month and that I have made, you know, two records. Well, that, that's the plus side of being the grounded realist that you are. Right. And you're like, I'm in a band with my friends and we make, right. We, you know. right. Yeah. I know. It's true. That's great. Uh, I got a small part in a play in a uh, movie with Janet Lee and Robert Mitchum. And there was another boy who had been cast to play Janet Lee's son. It was basically a co-starring role, a very big role. And I had this little bit, actually a deliberately non-speaking part. I was his silent friend from downstairs. And there were a couple jokes about Joey and silent Joey and Joey who never says anything. And uh, so I was, I was cast into that part. And apparently this, this young fellow uh, who had the lead role wasn't doing well. And um, after 10 days, they stopped filming and restarted with me in the lead role. And it's interesting because often I think back, I wonder what ever became of him, what, what he went on to do and whether that any, had any effect on his life at all. No, it comes from um, a Latin word for rumor. So it was more about talking about people behind their backs. And so that's how people get famous, because you're only famous when other people talk about you uh, kind of behind your back, and then they begin to make things up about you because they happen to care a little too much about (laughs) what's going on with you. And so then it gets tied to your imagination somehow, and you have to you know, um, build a whole other world based on this person existing. That's a big part of why I moved, because I think anonymity, which I suppose is the opposite of fame, is so valuable. And it's so such a beautiful thing to have that freedom where you can just wander around. You can be in your own head and nobody knows your business and that's what you miss out on I think when you um when that when you lose that um it's gone you know and 
I don't think people realize like for, for for some types of personalities that's like perfect for them um but I never enjoy it one of the strategies that actually um marketing people in particular some marketing people in Silicon Valley a guy called Regis McKenna in fact I think was a pioneer of this started to realize that the way that you can market and sell technology to the end user to the consumers is to um, personify the brand so that Steve Jobs was actively marketed and you know he was an image of him became um, important to the marketing and sales of the technology. You know, and, and no one in Hollywood is going to help you if, uh, if you fail. You know, there's not, you can't trust anyone. You can't depend on anyone. And, you know, and that's, that's what it comes down to. And so I had no safety net and there was no one who was there to tell me that things were not going well. And, I went into the meeting and I just thought I could wing it. And I, I, which is stupid because I'd gone into meetings before very well prepared and I hadn't gotten big deals, but at least I'd walked out of there thinking, well, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I hit the ball, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I may not have hit a home run, but I, you know, whereas I, I just went in there and I, I literally, I, I might as well have just gone in, you know, wearing a pair of boxers shorts on my head. You know, I was that much of a buffoon. And, um, and nothing, and, and to me that even though I, I hung around in Hollywood for a few years after that, that was the beginning of the end. And it was the beginning of the end of what I would call my famous period as well, because I had a little run there in the aughts where I was, you know, famous writer to some extent. You know, my first book didn't even come out till I was like 36 or something, maybe even older. Uh, so, and, and it was, a uh, like, a nice literary hit and then so it was uh, a real long almost like you know a, a period of getting used to what attention felt like and the different you know i mean really it's like i've said before it's kind of like if you eat but you know a big you know shit ton of, of beans you're gonna get farty that that's not that's not on you that's not you <laughs> it's, you don't have a character defect so i think if you get attention of any kind and you can see this even on your birthday, you know, even the day after your birthday, you were kind of pissy, you know. So I think this whole thing is you take you get attention uh, and it makes you a little full of shit that that is going to happen. So when it happens the way it did for me, like just very, very slowly or about a 20 year period, you get a little more, a little more. You kind of get in touch with the phenomenon. You're like, OK, so I've just been praised. I'm a little full of myself. I've just been criticized. I'm ready to jump off a cliff. Uh, and it comes in, it's almost like inoculation. It comes in small doses. And by this time, you know, I, I'm, at least I'm aware that it's a potential problem. My, my idea at this point in my life of an ideal fame, if you want to call it that, would be that I had a engaged enough fan base that when I put out something, I didn't have to sell it, that they would be excited and that they would know about it by nature of me mentioning it or that they were, you know what I mean? I, it, yes. it, so, so, so I guess I'm saying my level of fame is when I get to stop being 
a, a self-promoter. Can I tell you this? My concern in life is not how people view me. It's how I've made them feel. And it's all because, you know, I owe it all to Maya Angelou. She's got that quote, and I think I'm taking it out of context, but part of her quote is, people won't remember the things you said. They won't remember the things you did. They remember how you made them feel. And I think that if I'm interacting with people, I care more, I care less about what do they think about me and more of how, you know, are they, are they comfortable with themselves? Do they feel like they matter? Do they know that, that they're okay? You know, I just, for some reason, it's just so much more important to me than, I mean, that gives me a better feeling than, oh, they really were impressed by that joke I told. I remember doing a show like years ago, I did this elaborate, I probably even told you the story, elaborate puppet show and everything with all this pre-recorded stuff. And it was like, oh, it was just one of the highlights of my life. And it was a lot of people there and it was fun and great. And I felt a great success. And this woman came up after me and she was, man, that was great. You ought to go for it. I was like, what? Go for what? I just, I'm exhausted. I just went for it. Did you not witness that? I could die tomorrow. What is this? What is this far off it that I'm supposed to go for? I don't even understand. A lot of people who I've talked to don't like to even think about what they do. They're like, well, it's not really fame. I'm like, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. If right. you're making something public, there's, there's an aspect. There's definitely that feeling of like, yeah, you're talking to the wrong guy. Barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. There's no fame here. Yeah. But <laughs> nothing to see here. Yeah, nothing to see here. Just <laughs> I do feel like in our family, there was definitely importance put on fame. Like, it was exciting if you saw a famous person. Mm-hmm. And... You, you know, all, yeah, obviously, things, yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, my I feel like my grandpa really liked to name drop, like, oh, and I used to take walks on the beach with Tony Randall, you know, and like, uh, <laughs> yeah, which is really sweet. That's great. Yeah, because <laughs> they have a house on Fire Island, so it's like got that mix of like, you know, celebrities and blue collar Long Islanders. But at the same time, in my family, you weren't supposed to want it. Right. Right. But the, well, the whole world's telling you it's it's like it's value. Yeah. It's value. yeah. Thank you so much to Year One guests: John Hodgman, Tim Lockfeld, Mark Berger, Case Hudson, Annie Duke, Lois Parkinson, Monty Belmonte, Hardy White, Matthew Letkowitz, Soren Mason Temple, and Dave Rothstein, Dan Oppenheimer, Penny Lane, Andy Zeisler, Sarah Jaffe. Eugene Merman, Jessica Abel, Anya Schutz, Lindsay Mace, Anjali Milani, uh, Andrew Leland, Tina Antolini, Nora Murphy, Gordon Giebert, Cameron Bossert, Maeve Higgins, David Brock, Neil Pollock, George Saunders, Shanali Bomick, Tom Papalardo, Abby Crutchfield, and Matt and Kate Lorenz. You can find all of those episodes by going to 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Or by searching for us anywhere that podcasts are casted. As ever, thank you to Devin for his voice, to Christian Kandari for making our music, and to Ed Patnode for being the engineer who makes whatever I send him sound way better than it did when I sent it to him. This is 15 Minutes. I'm... Jamie Berger. <laughs>